Vidrio Financial is proud to support Improving Alpha, innovation in investing, ESG and technology with Michael Oliver Weinberg. Vidrio helps allocators harness investment complexity to make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Hi, this is Michael Oliver Weinberg. We'd like to welcome everyone to the Improving Alpha Innovation in Investing, ESG, and Technology podcast series. Today, Ben Samil is kind enough to join us from Australia, where he's a deputy CIO of the Future Fund. So listeners have a high-level sense of our roadmap for today. We will start with some background color, then discuss how the Future Fund's Improving Alpha, touch on the opportunities set in today's markets, and finish with some advice. On that note, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure. Good to see and hear you. Yeah, look, if you could perhaps very briefly share with us your background to begin, that would be a nice start, I think. Yeah, I can do that. So um, I uh, am now the Deputy CEO of the Future Fund. As you mentioned, um, I started my life and career in Melbourne and have not moved very far, clearly. I, uh, I was... I actually did a psychology and history degree, and then I accidentally ran into a finance uh, postgrad degree. I started work for a hedge fund uh, straight out of university. Um, I did that for about ten years, and then I uh, then I switched into the onto the asset owner side. I worked in the local superannuation system for about five years, and then I came over to the to the sovereign here at the future fund. I've been here for around ten years. Ben, yeah, maybe you could start with why is it called the Future Fund? It's it's kind of an interesting name for a for a, a, a fund, and tell us a little <laughs> more about it. Yeah, so it the Future Fund is the it's the sovereign wealth fund. It's responsible for investing for the benefit of future generations of Australians. So that's where the Future Fund comes from. It was established in two thousand six. So just recently had our fifteenth birthday. We actually manage six funds, but the biggest one is the fund called the Future Fund. Look, we 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 operate a little bit like the Reserve Bank in as much as we're somewhat independent, even though that we're a part of government, and uh, we have a very clear mandate. Uh, we have one client, and we have the sort of the typical responsibilities of a of a transparent government entity, and so it is. It's you know, it's a it's a unique. Uh, organization. It's a unique position that we hold within the Australian financial system and indeed the Australian public service. I am. I think it's a very clear and wonderful mandate and wonderful job, but uh, but I guess that's up for others to debate. Oh, it sounds great. Uh, maybe you could, you know, to contextualize the discussion, give, give us a bit of a sense as to what the objective of the fund is. So uh, the objective of the fund initially was established to uh, cover the the, uh, the the liabilities of defined benefits pensions of the Australian public of the Australian public service. So um, they were unfunded, and so the the original premise was that you would need to establish a fund that that covered those which were growing out over time. And, and while that's that's true, uh, like I said, money is fungible. So essentially, look, the it's Australia's biggest financial asset, and you know the the better we do, uh, the more services the Australian government can provide, or the lower taxes they ultimately uh, can 
can create so that, you know, for the same amount of services. So um, we feel that's an important job. Um, we feel like, you know, I often tell the team that every whatever billion dollars or so we make in excess returns is a hospital or a, or a road or a whole lot of teacher salaries or whatever that that otherwise would have to be paid for out of um, taxpayers' money or would not exist at all. So we think it's a very worthwhile job. Absolutely. How many beneficiaries are there? Well, ultimately 35 million or so. So it, it, it's literally for- Understood. And 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 obviously the, the the thesis or topic of this podcast is innovation and improving alpha. So you know, let's start with from from an invest investment perspective. The thoughts on that would be great. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think the look the there's multiple layers of that very clearly, and the way the the fund was established in the original premise was somewhat innovative in and of itself. I think. And I, I think it still is. So this, the original premise was that we have a CPI plus mandate and that there's there's many ways you can set yourself up to try to achieve that. The most typical way and the way that we were, I think, initially advised toward is, is the one that, that everyone would be familiar with. You know, you set some sort of actuarial, very long-term SAA and you, and you stick very closely to that over time and and you sort of, whatever, you select some managers and strategies and you try to incrementally beat that. The the Future Fund sort of rejected that um, as a premise and and the initial sort of founding documents are, are all about this concept of being one team, one portfolio, of being a joined up organisation, joined up investors where we would essentially every dollar would be a competition for capital and would have to earn a right to for for its place in the portfolio and that would be agreed upon by all the different senior members of of responsible for the different asset classes and the information that was made available in those decisions would be helpful to everyone else so and you know an equity decision would be helpful to a debt decision, which would be helpful to an infrastructure decision and and so on and so forth. So we've essentially tried to keep that sort of blank sheet of paper mentality. Um, it allows you to size things at a total portfolio level. It flows through to the way we're incentivized, which is on total fund performance and not on individual or any sort of benchmark relative performance. And so, so that's been the innovation at the sort of portfolio construction and, and I guess, organizational model level. And then clearly that, that filters down decision-making, diligence, governance, and the, you know, all the way through to individual security selection. Got it. And um, let's shift gears for a second to uh, ESG, one of the uh, three primary topics of this call. You know, uh, Everyone, everyone globally has a different view on ESG. It's obviously become a polarized or polarizing topic, uh, particularly in the U.S., but uh, even globally, I think. And um, obviously, this is timely in, in light of the fact that it happens to be the uh, the week of COP twenty seven, and um, it's it's obviously all the world's leaders are discussing it, and so shall we. So, <laughs> why don't you give us a, a brief, um, you know, a brief overview of where you are and or what you're looking to do and to the extent that it relates to you know innovation and improving alpha that would be great 
Yeah, of course. Also an inflation print and the US midterm. So uh, it's eternally topical. Look, we we did a lot of work through the COVID period on trying to understand how the world was sort of prospectively shaping up from a secular perspective. The way we invest is we cut with a, a view of the secular environment and ascribe some probabilities to to that environment. And then we try to map that to essentially how that will be distributed at a macro level. So the mix between growth and inflation and where cash flows might go on a sort of regional sector, government versus business versus consumer sort of level. And then that maps through to asset allocations and opportunities and whatnot. So we were we did a lot of thinking about that and we thought that the world had, had most likely changed coming out of COVID and that we would be in a more inflationary world punctuated by a series of what we call paradigm shifts. And one of those paradigm shifts, a very clear and obvious one, was the carbon transition. So we it's it's an you know it's it's the biggest capital event of our lifetime. It's probably the biggest problem humanity's had to solve. And we think it is incredibly important all the way from the macro level growth inflation mix through all the way down to sort of the individual opportunity assessment. So we try to embed it pretty much through everything we do. So we embed it in our macro positioning. It's central to our portfolio construction. We embed it in diligence of managers to make sure that they are taking it seriously and appropriately incorporating the risk um, and and you know, in a sophisticated way, doing the risk reward calculations that we would expect of any other risk factor. And then all the way down to the individual opportunity level where we're buying whatever a property and infrastructure asset, insuring something, then clearly, you know, this this physical risk is is pertinent. So we think it's really important. We think as the world shifts from a sort of an intangible capex light focused world to something more tangible and much more heavily dependent on physical capital and that physical capital shifts to developed markets. And a lot of that is around climate transition projects that that creates an awful lot of opportunity to provide capital into that environment where an awful lot of capital is needed. And that's all the way from sort of the first derivative wind farm, solar plant through to all the various interesting ways you can, you know, you can seek opportunities through this theme, which also involves a lot of volatility and disruption and, and regulatory risk, government winners and government choosing winners and losers and that kind of thing. So it's a more, we think it's a more complicated world. We think it's super interesting and we think it's opportunity rich for those who can do this thoughtfully. Yeah, I completely agree. I was speaking with uh, Mark Carney at uh, the Milken conference some months ago. And um, though I, I can't recall the number offhand, the, the numbers he was talking about in terms of global infrastructure investment to um, up, upgrade the world effectively to alternatives and um, EVs, the, the, the amount is, the power grids, obviously, the amount is is staggering. Uh, it is, as you say, one of the, will be, you know, certainly in dollar terms, obviously, but but even, even relatively will be one of the largest investments in humanity. Yeah, look, let's talk about um, exclusion versus engagement. Uh, do you or uh, your does does Future Fund have a view? Uh, we do. Um, yeah, so so we lean pretty heavily toward engagement and um, and 
and we do that very actively. So we have we have a dedicated ESG team, but that team sits within the investment team and is incorporated into investment decisions, every investment decision, and 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 they have a you know a dedicated piece of work which contributes to to every investment decision that we make and they also engage with all sort of well not all companies that we own because obviously we're in a global asset owner so we own a lot but but all significant or controversial companies particularly in Australia so we feel like the the biggest impact we can have is is via influence um we think that ex- exclusions are uh, problematic for lots of reasons. One of those reasons is is really simply that, you know, how do you make the decision and on what data? So if, if we wanted to remove the biggest emitters today, we would be withdrawing from, you know, utility companies primarily, um, or maybe uh, materials companies as well. But they're incredibly important, obviously, to to solve this big problem, to solve the transition problem. And so starving them of capital feels like, it feels somewhat wrongheaded. I couldn't agree more. Uh, in, in engagement is, in my view, no doubt the solution. Exclusion is is not. And to your point, yeah, I mean, if you're looking for a transition to alternative energy and EVs, you need the utility companies to provide the infrastructure and, and, and you know, you need the materials companies to provide the copper and lithium and rare earth materials and, and, and on and on it goes. And, um, and again, I mean, even, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, anyway, largely on the same page there. But in, in, in the name of time, I guess. Yeah, what about technology? Uh, you and I have discussed it in the past, but maybe you could share with our listeners how, uh, how, how you're using technology to improve alpha and, and, and returns. Yeah, so we're pretty humble about our direct use of technology. So what you don't see from the Future Fund is any grand sort of, I don't know, data science team being brought in to try to help with asset allocation or anything like that. Like I started my life in hedge funds and at a at a te- at a quantitative hedge fund doing nascent sort of machine learning techniques. And then I've invested in a lot of hedge funds. A lot of those are the most sophisticated sort of quantitative hedge funds in the world. The the, the resource challenge and the, the skills challenge required to compete in that game is not something that I would hope that we you know, was so hubristic that we we felt like we should be taking on. So, you know, we need to be responsible responsible about the our um what we think we can achieve and then sort of match our efforts to that. So most of our efforts are around creating efficiencies so that the investment team can really think about investment problems and not spend all their time trying to churn through things that you know that are repeatable to us essentially so we've spent a lot of time doing that where we think um technology is particularly important and can really provide a comparative advantage potentially internally is around decision making especially decision making timely decision making under pressure so our governance does allow us to make timely decisions which is important and a comparative advantage i think but those decisions are often extremely hard and and they're uh, you know, sort of more variables than one can hold in their head um, at any one time, especially at a committee level. So if we can create sort of very efficient, effective decision-making user interfaces, essentially for committee-based decisions, which which very effectively transmit the sort of trade-offs around the various decisions we can make in this moment, then we think that that 
can create some real efficiencies to better decision-making. So it, we, we've spent time and energy focusing on that kind of thing. And then obviously when hiring external managers, which is, which is our model, um, we spend an awful lot of time and energy trying to understand, you know, what is sufficient technology versus, versus what is a real comparative advantage and, and how you, you know, how you make that repeatable. And, um, and that has led us to sort of directed the way we invest and where we, we choose to invest our marginal dollars in particular in, in sort of hedge funds. Understood. Where do you see the best opportunity from an investment perspective now, or or a, a great enough, or sorry, maybe not the best, but a, a, a superb opportunity? If if you can share that with us. Yeah, no, I'd love to. It's going to be a really boring answer though. So um, that's okay. It, like, it would be more fun to talk about some you know grand macro opportunity, and I spend a lot of my life doing that, and I do have a lot of fun doing that. But actually, I feel like the best opportunity now, and the most important thing that an asset owner anyway can do is be aware that we're in a world of really heightened volatility and that's new and that's changed and that's really meaningful and it's going to create a lot more pressure on decision makers and either you're going to be making a lot more decisions or you're going to feel the pressure to make a lot more decisions and whether you do do make make more decisions or you don't, either way, that's an active choice. And so getting your governance and decision-making processes and technology and support and data right to be able to make those decisions, making sure you have the right people making those decisions, making sure you have appropriate delegations, making sure you have a well-resourced legal team and operations team, all of that sort of organizational overhang which people don't tend to enjoy investment people don't love talking about necessarily we feel is is more important than ever and, and is really the focus of our attention uh so where do you see the um biggest challenge coming from to achieving the goal yeah look we think that as i sort of mentioned uh, a little while back we think the world has changed we think there are really significant shifts happening and that a lot of those paradigmatic trends were enormous tailwinds for returns on capital and that many of them have ceased to be tailwinds and in some cases are actively headwinds um so we just think that things get a lot harder from from here you know the we're being very public that we think we're in a more inflationary world that feels obvious now it was less obvious when inflation was printing it with zeros and negatives in front of it and that that inflationary world does not have to look like seven percent inflation every year obviously but it probably sets somewhere a bit higher um and that the shocks which have tended to or have tended to be deflationary will just as likely be inflationary and that creates all sorts of portfolio construction challenges because correlations now move around. And we think this great sort of trend of the world becoming a smaller and smaller place and that capital and people and goods having ever fewer frictions to movement is all reversing. And so that means there's bigger regional differences. There's a bigger dispersion between winners and losers and and there's there's sort of more decision making volatility for every decision you make. So so that's kind of an exciting world for an investor to be in because you know because you're sort of 
hopefully rewarded for for the work you're doing but it's but it's clearly harder just to to make bulk returns on on leaning into risk assets yep then shifting gears um at the manager level what's a red flag with the manager such that you wouldn't invest Is yeah this a conceptual question sorry yeah absolutely um i mean we're, we're pretty nuanced about um our manager selection and we and we don't have any sort of hard and fast dogmatic rules um it's very much a sort of horses for courses opportunity assessment that said if i had to call out a red flag um it would be any hints of dishonesty uh and that can come in multiple guises but it, it's the way a manager is promoted what's in the pitch book um how their returns are presented all these things give little hints into, you know, an insight into culture, which can be revealing and, and concerning. So, so frankly, any hint that I'm being lied to becomes a very high bar. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, I think recently I came across a manager and I remember looking at this manager's track after the first tech bubble and then the manager had closed and then relaunched and there was no <laughs> mention of the track from the first tech bubble, which... <laughs> Which which was was up multiple hundred percent in the late '90s, and then not surprisingly down massively as one would expect in 00 to 03 during the bear market and the relaunch. No mention of any of that, and uh, I was just I'm I'm shocked. And and uh, somehow investors don't do the due diligence, don't know, and um, the managers successfully been running a business again since. Yeah, magic pitch book timing. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, that sort of stuff is uh, is just a huge no-no. Yeah, anyway, um, look, uh, we're, we're, we are running out of time, but let's do a few more questions before we wrap up. Um, you know, look, what's a material mistake you've made investing and a lesson learned? <laughs> I was doing... Um... I was actually talking about this internally and I gave a presentation to all staff about it the other day because... Um, I think this is really important. Like we have to be clear that we make mistakes and that maybe the biggest mistake that you can ever make is is not ever making a mistake because it probably suggests you're not taking too many chances or you're not doing much at all. And so I'm very keen on on making sure we have a investment culture that allows for thoughtful failure. Like, you know, I don't want people just gunslinging, but but if if you do the work, then we'll support you. And if you've, you know, if you've been sideswiped by the market through no particular fault of diligence or hard work or or whatever then then that we we need to be okay with that so but you know when i asked my um when i when i suggested i do that the the feedback from my head of people and culture was but but which of the thousands are you going to talk about ben which no. felt a bit unfair <laughs> but isn't isn't so far from the truth the one i i chose to speak about which i think is is kind of relevant here on the innovation side is um you always have a choice i think and and so i used to run the hedge fund team and in particular in hedge funds you have a choice about doing work that's really interesting versus committing time to work that is fairly obviously going to be productive and i think you need to strike a balance between those two but in this occasion frankly i spent probably too much time and resources doing some work that I thought was incredibly interesting and would have a huge upside, but ultimately 
failed. And so the key to that was, okay, now it's failed. You've spent an awful lot of time and energy doing this thing. What now? What do you do with it? And so what we chose to do with it was to write a very detailed post-mortem to publish that to the investment team, to talk about it a lot in all of our meetings. And then we wrote a learnings piece, which turned into what's our philosophy on alpha generation, which was a hundred page internal document on everything that we'd learn from that and everything else we're doing and translating that into a philosophy going forward. And from that, we really changed tact and concentrate, frankly, another part of the, the hedge fund universe, which which has ultimately been incredibly productive for us. And we've earned many billions of dollars from that decision. But the initial investment in and of itself was a complete failure. And frankly, if we just ignored it and tried not to think about it, it would have just remained a failure. So um so it's, you know, we, we think that's a really important learning that you're going to make those mistakes, but what you do with them from there is is what defines success or failure. Yeah, no, that's a great story. I mean, that I and and you know, I I, I and it's great though you turned a negative into a positive. And uh, you know, I I do I I will say though, and slightly in your defense, you know, it's not as though you were doing something entirely unrelated to investing. And I will say that sometimes when one looks at, in my experience, you know, as both in a hedge fund PM as well and as a former allocator. Um, or as an allocator, you know, when one looks at um, investments that may seem orthogonal and to your point are super interesting, but may not be the most relevant. I've often found that sometimes in the future, there's something that you've learned from that, that becomes relevant and, or you reference or so it's, it's not always as linear, but it, in this case, in any case, it's great though. You turned a negative into a positive. Yeah. Yeah. And so just, just, deciding how you use those resources because your team also needs to be interested and motivated so you know that you've just got to got to be careful around your resource allocation to to the different parts of the universe what 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 very quickly what's your favorite book that you've read or um or, or a book that you've read recently that's interesting that that we might like to read i I struggle to sit on one, but the um, but the laundry list is. So when I was a kid, it was definitely Catch Twenty Two, and then as a young adult, probably Song of Solomon and the God of Small Things. Um, right now, I'm reading a book called San Francisco, um, which is actually a pretty interesting investigation into the demise of. Uh, of San Francisco. Um, so uh, th th there's a few to choose from. Cool. And then we'll we'll start to wrap up. But um, before we do, what advice do you have for other allocators and investors? I, I reckon that it, I find it hard enough doing my own job without uh, without being so hubristic as to think I should be doling out advice to anyone else. So <laughs> I reckon we do really good, valuable, fascinating work which is pretty hard and uh and maybe just remembering that it's also really good and privileged and fun is uh is the most important thing sounds fair uh anything we didn't discuss that i should have asked you or you you're, you're discussing now with other allocators or that that the the the, the world might, might might like to know no look like it feels like we're in more interesting times than perhaps we've been in uh, over the, you know, I don't know, nine to 20 period or whatever. Um, it feels like some of the 
some of the work we do and spend a lot of time on is is being rewarded and uh, and whilst that might make an absolute return world more difficult it does feel it does feel almost more important to get up a few minutes earlier and try to do our job a little bit better Sounds very rational. Ben, look, we'd like to thank you for that interesting discussion and sharing your most valuable asset with us, your time. We hope listeners have a better appreciation how one of the world's most sophisticated asset owners is improving alpha via innovation and investing, ESG, and technology. This is your host, Michael Oliver Weinberg, hoping you join us again for our next episode, where we'll speak with another thought leader who will provide insight into uh, improving alpha. Until then, stay well, keep innovating and improving alpha. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG and Technology, sponsored by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial, asset managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial and or our host, Michael Oliver Weinberg. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.